Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out at our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastchrist.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. So this week we were uh, in a discussion about um, with some pastors about online church. They said, what do you think about online church? You know, you can watch the message from home, from your couch and all that, and get the kind of the same. And I said, I, I think you'd miss one really big thing. You would miss the worship. Like that, that is the thing that like I think I probably come uh, for the most. It's definitely not the sermon, especially when Doyle's speaking, is uh, it's the worship, right? And so I just want to thank them. If you'll help me thank our, our worship team for leading us this morning. Uh, it's such a gift that we uh, get to gather together and do that. So I... Um, I have a, a new obsession, and it is uh, this specific type of video on YouTube. And it's going to sound a little strange at first, but they're called oddly satisfying videos. Maybe you've seen them before. Um, you just didn't know that they were called this. And uh, they became very popular over COVID especially. And it's just people doing things really, really well. Like just doing their job really well or doing something that just brings just peace and satisfaction. And you would... It's strange that we watch these. Okay, some of you guys are looking at me with like a blank stare. Like, I don't know if I've been on YouTube once. Like, okay, here's what the videos look like. Actually, you know what? Um, I got a couple quick that you can see. You can just see them. We throw those up there real quick. Okay, so you've never done anything that well before in your life. Like, nothing ever goes that smoothly. And so when you watch videos like that, there's just something satisfying where you go, Ah, oh, that's good. That's really nice. That's just, like, my kids do it. They watch other kids play with toys that they have themselves. Or, like, open up presents. Or they'll watch other families on vacation. I'm like, we've literally been there. You didn't have as much fun as watching them. In, or, like, they, you know, these trick shot videos where people make it. It's like, yeah, I made it on the first try because that's how life is supposed to be. And so I started doing a little bit. Actually, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. Did you get a piece of paper when you came in? Yeah, a piece of paper and pen. Grab that real quick. I can tell that you're not convinced yet. So here's what we're going to do. I want you to attempt that last one, that perfect circle. I want you to draw the most perfect circle. You can't trace, don't cheat, Jesus is watching. You got to do it freehand. So take it out, take the pen, and I'm going to give you like 30 seconds, and you have to draw the most perfect circle. Then hold on to it, because I'm going to have you do something with it, all right? So ready, set, go. Okay, now raise your hand if you think yours was the best out of the group. Yeah? Yours was the best? Okay, now here's what we're going to do next. Uh, this is like Squid Game style, if you know what this, uh, what that uh, show was, which you, sh you shouldn't. Um, is you now have to tear out that circle as perfectly as you can. So you end up with the perfect circle at the end, all right? So I'm going to give you about 60 seconds. Do that, and then I'm going to have you hold them up, and we're going to see really how good you guys are, all right? Go. All right, let's go ahead and see... Hopefully, oh yeah, some of you guys are like, I'm not done yet. Uh, you know, we got other things to do here, all right? So let's see what you got. So go ahead and hold up those circles and see what they look like. Look around, look at some people over there, judge them for how badly their circles came out. That's kind of how their life looks, probably. <laughs> kidding, I'm just kidding. Look around. Now here's what's fun, is some of you guys held up the circle, some of you guys held up the paper without, yeah, see, I see you, I see you. I don't know what that means, but it means you're different, that's for sure. All right. <laughs> all right, all right, save those. Uh, we, uh, we might give out an award later uh, for the best one. 
we'll, we'll have to see. Okay, so um, there's something just so satisfying about seeing like a, like somebody just draw a perfect circle. Like what is it about that? Or, you know, just doing their job really, really well. And so psychologists have begun studying why are these videos so popular? So it's not like a couple people are watching these. Tens of millions of people are watching these videos of all ages. And so they, they began to study it, and there's been articles written about it. And here's what they've come up with. They believe the reason why we like these videos and we find them so satisfying is because they are an idealized version of our lives, meaning they do what we do, but better. There is something within us that says, this is how things should be done. This is the way the world should be. And when we see it like that, we're attracted to it. There is something that just brings satisfaction to seeing things the way that they should be. And it's not just when we talk about, you know, doing a job well. It really is of all of life. Is there has been this intuition throughout human history that there is a way that the world should be. Like when you get up and you look at the world, no matter where you live, the time that you've lived in, in human history, you've looked at the world and said, things aren't exactly how they should be. Things are supposed to be different than they really are. And what we're looking for is... And if you kind of dig below all of our political differences and, and our cultural differences and economic and even moral differences, what you'll find is that what everybody is looking for is the way that the things should be. And the way that things should be is that our deepest desires should be fulfilled. So when we watch somebody do a really good job, we know that there is something about our job that if we don't find it fulfilling, that's not how things were supposed to be. We were supposed to have jobs that we find fulfilling and we, we find satisfaction in, and yet we don't. This is true of all arenas of life, in our relationships, and our, our finances, is we know that we should be in a world in which we have these deep desires for love and acceptance and safety and belonging and fulfillment. And I, I think that probably the deepest desire is for a life after this, for our life to continue on, for it not to have an end date. And so there is something intuitive in the human experience in which we desire these things, and we know that there should be, they should be available in the world, and yet that's not the world that we live in. The world that we live in is not one that meets our deepest desires, at least not uh, for very long. It's a world that's full of injustice and conflict, failure, disappointment, and of course, death. So what do we do with this tension? This tension of knowing how the world should be and the reality of it is not that way. Well, thinkers have been coming up with explanations of why the world is like that and how we might be able to fix it, and they range. There's varied explanations. They would say things like, well, the issue is income inequality or racial tension or corrupt governments and leaders, poor self-esteem, genetic dispositions, lack of education, and so they say those are the problems, and so if we can just fix those things, then the world is going to be made right, and we will finally have our deepest desires met. The problem is that as we address each of these issues, which I think is a good thing, it doesn't seem to satisfy us. It doesn't seem to be able to fulfill the things that we're really looking for, the things that we really desire. There are some of us that might just be a little bit more cynical, and we're tempted to say, well, the world is just like that. Yeah, it's just not the way that it's supposed to be. It's a mess, and so what you should do is you should pursue power and pleasure and prestige. Get as much as you can while you can, because it's just going to get ugly. And of course, if we live this way, we not only inflict harm on other people, but it ends up destroying us. And so C.S. Lewis, he has an interesting insight into this. Here's what he says. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exist. A baby feels hunger? Well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there is such thing as water. 
Men feel sexual desire? Well, there's such thing as sex. Now, here's his conclusion. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So what he's saying is, is we have all these desires, simple desires like food and water, and we can find satisfaction for those. But those deeper desires, the ones for love and for safety and acceptance and belonging, those ones we can't find satisfaction for anywhere in this world. And so he says either we've gone wrong somewhere and we, we've, been, uh, we've, we've been tricked into thinking that we can satisfy these desires, or there is a world in which they are satisfied, we just don't live in it. So um, I'm going to give you a quick example, see if we can make sense of this. Let's imagine that you and I are Elon Musk, and we have a spaceship. And so this afternoon, we're going to take our spaceship, and we're going to go to Mars, because that's what we've been working towards. And eventually, we get to Mars, and we land there, and we open up the door, and we step out onto Mars. What is the first thing that's going to happen? We're going to die, right? We're going to take a deep breath and go, ah, done, where it's over. Why? Well, because... When we step out, it's lacking something that we desire. What do we desire? Uh, oxygen. Doesn't have it. Has extreme climates that we, we can't live in. And so it's very clear to us that if we were to go to Mars, it is not the world that we were designed to live in because it cannot sustain our desires. Now, let's pretend that we jump back in our spacecraft. We come here to Earth. We open up the doors. We step out and we go, ah, oxygen. Is this the world that we were made for? Well, not necessarily, because we said that the reason why we were not made for Mars is because it cannot sustain our desires. Well, what about Earth? Can it sustain our desires? Well, only just a little bit longer. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, you're going to die at best 85 years here and seconds there. Either way, you're dying. And so it tells us that if Mars is not the place that can sustain us, it's not the place we were made for, the same applies for here on Earth. I think death is probably the ultimate sign that we were made for another world. The deepest desires of our hearts is for our love to last forever. Like if you've ever lost a loved one before, and I'm sure all of us have, I don't care if you believe in God, you don't believe in God, there is something intuitive. There is something that you just know at your core, this is not the way things were supposed to be. Death was, death was not a part of this plan. Our relationship was not supposed to end. It, it can't end in grief and sorrow that this could not be the way that the story ends. Look at all the stories that we tell ourselves. Look at every Disney story that's ever been told. Good triumphs over evil. That the hero wins in the end. That there is a happily ever after. There's something in, inside of us that we know this is the way that the world is supposed to be. This is the stories that we tell. And so I think it all points to the fact that this can't be the world that we were designed to live in. This can't be our ultimate place. Something must have gone wrong. The scripture says that we were created for another world, a world in which our deepest desires are met. And that world was described in Genesis. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he created you and I, and we were supposed to dwell in this place called the Garden of Eden in which we can be in a relationship with him which we don't have death, we don't have sorrow, we don't have disease, we feel totally accepted and fulfilled and loved. That's what we were designed for. And within the human heart, because God says that he wrote eternity in our hearts, we know intuitively. It's like a long-lost memory in human history that that is the world that we were supposed to live in, but that's not the world that we currently live in. Genesis talks about the rebellion of man against God. 
that we decided that we wanted to go our own way, that we no longer wanted him to be the ultimate authority of our life. And when that happened, we lost the ability to meet the deepest desires of our heart because we lost that relationship with God. Fast forward, God doesn't leave us there. He sends Jesus, and Jesus gives us the ability to come back to that place. Through his death and resurrection, he says, you now can be in a right relationship with God, and although we haven't fully realized it yet, he opens up the door, the pathway, so that we can come back to the place that we know we belong, in full relationship with him. But it's not just about a relationship with him. That's the primary, but it's also a place. So if you go to the book of Revelation, and I gotta be honest, I'm always scared of the book of Revelation. I don't understand it half the time. There's all this wild imagery. It kind of freaks me out a little bit. But it's an important book because the book was written by John, who is one of Jesus' disciples, and he is having a vision of what's going to happen in the future. In the last chapter, chapter 21 and 22, he gives us this vision of what lies ahead for us who are believers. Here's what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So there's a few key words here that I want to focus in on. A new heaven and a new earth, and it is coming down. So we have a popular conception of heaven. First thing that probably pops into your mind is clouds, harps, baby angels, uh, and white robes, and it sounds incredibly boring. That, I feel like, describes hell more than it describes heaven. We've been sold this idea that this is what heaven is, so we don't desire heaven, but that's not at all what the scripture says. The scripture says, first of all, that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and it is going to be coming down to, to this earth. Now, this, this is kind of wild for some of you. Maybe some of you haven't heard of the, this before, but heaven is not a place in which we have this disembodied state where our soul goes to. It is a place that is, is more real than where we currently live right now. That is a place that is of flesh and bone, that is that we can touch, we, we have our, our senses. That at the end of human history, what God promises us is that he is going to come down and he is going to restore creation to the way it was intended to be. He's not gonna just say, ah, oh, forget it, it's all a mess. No, 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 he's gonna say, you know what, what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna bring heaven and earth down and I'm gonna restore all that has been corrupted including your body and mine. Paul talks about um, Jesus being the first fruit. And what he means by this is, he means that Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection, that he is the example, that he is the first one to go, for, to go, go ahead of us. And so um, if you think about what happened to Jesus after his resurrection, he comes for 40 days and he hangs out. He appears to people who he knew, people who he didn't know, people recognize him. He goes and he has breakfast with his disciples. I mean, he is literally there. He tells Thomas, come and touch my hands. You can see where the nails, they pierced me. And so he doesn't come as like the spirit. Where he's like, no, 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 no. He comes as Jesus in the flesh. And what Paul says is that will be the same future for you and I if we believe in him, is that one day we will have a new body that we will be restored, not just to our best that we were in this lifetime, to the intended best. That we won't just be brought back to life, but we'll be brought back to the life that God intended for us. And so when I think about this new body, um, there's a couple things that come to my mind. Is one day I will be, uh, I'll have a six pack. That's gonna be awesome. Never had one of those before. <laughs> okay, that's gonna be great. Uh, right, Doyle? 
Just making sure you're awake over there. Uh, here's the other thing. So um, I was born without the ability to see out of my right eye. And so growing up, I was always so jealous of people who could watch those 3D movies, you know, where you had the blue and the, the glasses on, and I'm like, is this amazing? I'm like, no, it looks blue to me, man. Like, this isn't, I can't see anything. I think, that's going to be cool. I'm going to have like 20-20 vision, or maybe even better than that. I can't wait to see what that's going to be like. And, and you probably have your thing, man, I can't wait to live a life without anxiety, without fear, without regret. Because that's what we're promised. Continues on, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So the centerpiece of this new creation is going to be not just this physical restoration, but the restoration of your relationship with God. Is that you in those moments when you see God face to face, everything will make sense. All the fears and all the worries, all the questions that you had will be gone. You will know in that moment everything that you've ever wondered, everything that you've ever needed to know about God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is all the things that won't be in heaven. There won't be death, mourning, crying, pain. All of it will be gone and forgotten, a distant memory. Verse 7, those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So John goes from describing what heaven will be like to describing what hell will be like. And this is the part that most of us want to skip over. But he says, if heaven is reality, then hell is a reality. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about this. And he Wright, a really popular uh, theologian, he's written a lot about heaven and hell and the resurrection. And he says, what we don't understand is the scripture tells us that the afterlife is really two phases. He calls it life after, life after death. And he says, so phase one is the soul separating from the body. That at the moment of death, our soul separates from our body, and those who believe in Jesus go to be with him, and they have a more intimate fellowship. So you think about Jesus on the cross. He's talking to the criminal, and the criminal says that he believes in Jesus, and so Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise today. And immediately we go to be with the Lord. Paul says it's better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And so those who believe, they go to be the Lord. But those who do not believe, when their soul separates from their body, they go to this place called Hades. And the scripture describes this as a place of torment and separation from God. So I was trying to wrestle with this, because if you know me, you know that I'm a fairly skeptical person. And I just, it sounds almost a little too magical for me. Right? Like, we have science. Like, we know things that they didn't know when they wrote this. Can I really believe any of this? And so uh, a handful of years back, my grandfather passed away. And it's those moments in which you're kind of forced to really start thinking about death. Most of the time we try to ignore it. But... And so I started reading. I started reading some different books. And uh, some of the literature that I came across was about near-death experiences. And if you don't know what a near-death experience is, is <clears throat> it's people who have come to the brink of death, that they have uh, medically died for a period of time, and then they're brought back to life. And this is an emerging area of study where science is trying to figure out what is happening here. There's been hundreds of papers, tens of thousands of stories of people who have died and come back to life and what they saw. 
So I started reading some of these stories. And it's not just like these are like, like on the These are in major medical journals. They're in major magazines. So I read one from The Atlantic. And The Atlantic describes a story in which um, a woman is going to go into this procedure. She has to have brain surgery. And in order to do this procedure, what they have to do is they pretty much have to put you to death for a number of hours to work on your brain. So they drain you of your blood. They bring your body core temperature down to 60 degrees. You have no brain activity. They stop your heart. You're, you're like clinically dead for a few hours while they work on you. So the procedure goes well. This woman is technically dead for a few hours. She comes back, and she begins to describe her experience. And in her experience, she starts to talk about things that there's no way she could have known. She talks about the doctors and the instruments that they use. She begins to draw them, and they're very odd shapes. She would have never seen these. She begins to talk about the conversations that they were having during the surgery. She begins to give details about how they perform the surgery that she could have never known before. And it's not just this woman. This is one story in thousands of them of people saying, no, I was separated from my body. I was able to witness what was happening here. And so to me, this goes, okay, the scripture says that immediately after death, our soul separates from our body. And we seem to now have, as modern medicine increases, we seem to have the ability to confirm that. If you look at these experiences, they have very similar elements. Not only do they separate from their bodies, but they go. They go to some otherworldly place. And they describe this as more real than real. Like they're more alive, their, their senses are more enhanced. Blind people who are even blind from birth come back describing what it means to have sight. They experience this love, this unconditional love, and it changes them. Many of them describe meeting this being of light. Oftentimes they describe this being as light as Jesus. They see deceased ones. They have um, a, a life review, and they look at all of the things that they've done, not their accomplishments, but the things, that, like how they've treated people. And when they come back, they have been profoundly changed. Like most people who come back from these experiences, they look at life completely different. They say that they're less concerned about material wealth, more concerned about relationships. They're no longer afraid of death. Um, they have a heightened sense of purpose and compassion. And I wonder if God is just giving us a little glimpse into, hey, this is real. Here's a little insight into what awaits you. Now, not all of these experiences are delightful, though. About a quarter of them describe them as hellish experiences. There's one, um, and I'll just go through it real quick, is a, uh, he was a tenured professor and also self-proclaimed atheist. And he was traveling with a bunch of students in Paris, started having incredible stomach pains, went to the hospital. They said, you need emergency surgery, but there is no surgeon in this region. Eventually, he comes to the point where he goes, I'm dying. This is it. He tells his wife, who is sitting there, this is the end for me. She, he says his goodbyes, and he passes out. But then he wakes up. But he wakes up, and he realizes that he's no longer in the bed. He's standing, and he's looking at his body, and he's looking at his wife crying over his body, and he feels better than he's ever felt before. And so he hears some voices in the hallway, and he goes to the hallway because they're yelling his name. They said, follow me. And he goes, no, no, but I'm sick. I need surgery. No, no, no. We've got that tank. Come and follow me begins to follow them. And as this path that he's walking down, it becomes darker and darker and darker. And these creatures that are leading him become not only angry, but they start violently attacking him to where he doesn't know what to do. And something in him says, call out to God. And so he calls out to God and they recoil in the name of God. And, and he begins to pray. He's, not an, he's an atheist. He's like, I don't even know what I'm doing right now. But I remember as a child, I learned the Lord's prayer. So he starts saying that. And then eventually he says, Jesus, just come and save me. Jesus comes and embraces him, and he says in that moment he's never felt more loved in his entire life. They begin reviewing what his life was about. 
the kind of son that he was to his parents, the kind of parent he was to his children, how he used people to get ahead in his career. He knew that he could not pretend to be a good person in that moment. Eventually, he comes back to life. And up until that point, it's just a story. I don't really know what to make of that. I go, I don't know, man. Maybe you're telling me a tale. But here's what's really fascinating about guys like this and, and countless others. He wakes up and he goes, I'm no longer an atheist. I believe in God. I met Jesus, and so I am quitting my job, and I'm going to seminary, and I'm becoming a pastor, and it cost him everything. His wife left. His kids wanted nothing to do with him. He lost his uh, tenure professorship. His whole life was turned upside down, but he just said, I know what the truth is now, and there's something powerful about that. Go, okay, it's just a story. No, he's willing to give up everything he has for that story, and so this is only, the, this is only the, the, the midway point. The scripture tells us that our soul separates from our body, but that's not where we ultimately end up. That we were made to be both soul and body together. And so that brings us to kind of the phase two part of this, is our soul and our body is reunited. It says one day Christ will return. And when he does return, he will bring the souls of those who have departed. And he will reunite the soul and the body and the resurrection of the dead. And what he will do in those moments is he will judge everyone. Those who have given their life over to him, he says, you will inherit this new heaven, this new earth. And not only that, but you will be rewarded for what you did with your resources, with your relationships here on earth. But he says to those who do not know me, even those who think that they know me, depart. And he cast them into hell. And you might be thinking, I don't believe in that kind of God. I don't believe in the kind of God that would send people to hell. And my response would be, God is not sending anybody to hell. God is simply honoring our choice. Our choice in this life just echoes through eternity. And so you can say, you know, I've got 85 years here. And during those 85 years, I wanted nothing to do with God. I was about myself. And God will say, I will honor that, not just for this life, but for the next He's simply giving us what he wants. C.S. Lewis says that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. So what if all this is true? What if this really is what is going to happen to each one of us? That eventually we will end up somewhere forever. What are the implications for this life? Let me give you just a couple really quick. First one is this. Is I think that if we t- truly do believe that heaven awaits us, it takes the pressure off of today. I see people all the time who know that eternity is written on their heart, but they don't intellectually believe in it, or they haven't put their faith in Christ, and so what they try to do is they try to bring heaven to this life. I desire heaven, and so if I don't believe that there is something after this, I've got to bring heaven now. And so I remember at the beginning of COVID, there was this video that went viral, and it was all these celebrities, and they were singing the song uh, John Lennon's Imagine. You probably all know the opening line is, imagine there's no heaven. It's interesting. Um, Bad timing, by the way, on that one. But the song is advocating no God, no afterlife. We're in charge. We're the ultimate authority. And so we must rise up and create heaven here on earth. And every time that throughout human history that somebody has tried to do this, you know what has happened? It's created ruthless dictators, hedonism, nihilism, communism, pretty much all the worst things of humanity every time we try to bring heaven to earth because we believe we're in control. And unfortunately, I think this is the attitude of most people today. 
You only live once, so let's make the most of it. And so we pursue whatever makes us happy, whatever we think is going to bring us some kind of fulfillment. We try to cram it all in in 85 years. And if something gets in your way or you have a disability, you have lost. You've been cheated. I remember when I was in school, um, I used to take these tests, and they would be tests at the end of the semester. And because I wasn't a great student, this test determined how I was going to, if I was going to pass or not. Like, I'm always, like, right on that edge. And so I'd go into these tests with just an enormous amount of pressure and stress, like, this will make or break me. <laughs> like, everything is riding on this. But then I would look around, and there'd be a couple of kids who are just having the time of their life. And I go, why are you not anxious? Why are you not stressed? Oh, my grade's so high, I don't even have to worry about this test. I'm like, ugh, I knew I didn't like you. <laughs> I think what happens when we start to, when, when, we, when we truly do believe that there's something that awaits us, we are able to take the pressure off, kind of like that test taker. If everything is riding on this life, every day you better get up and make the most of it, and if something gets in your way, you better knock it down. Or, this is just the entrance. This is just the warm-up. I know that no matter what happens in my time here, it's going to be okay in the end. Nothing's really riding on this because I've already been promised what comes after this. It also gives us hope. The way you live today is, is completely dependent upon what you believe is going to happen in the future. So let's say I chose two of you and I said, hey, I got a deal for you. I'm going to give you a job. Your job is to make this widget. You're going to sit there all day, every day at the table and just have this mundane work. And I say to one of you, and at the end of the year, here's what you're going to get, $20,000. And you'll say, that's less than minimum wage. And I'll say, what are you going to do? But then to the other person, I say, and, but you're going to get $20 million. You know what would, the difference between the two people would be? Enormous. One would go to work and go, this is the best job I've ever had. Can you believe it? We get to make these widgets? Unbelievable, you know? Just cheery, they're early, just excited. The other guy will probably quit within the first couple days. What's the difference? Same circumstances. The difference is what they believe about the future. If you believe that this is all that there is, there's nothing after this, it's going to affect the way that you live. But if you believe that this is just beginning, that there is something after this, it's going to give you an incredible amount of hope. Even despite difficult circumstances, you will believe, you know what, this is not all that there is. This is what has enabled Christians throughout the centuries to do some pretty incredible things. They were able to go through suffering and persecution and hardships and even sacrifice their very lives because they believed that this was not all that there is. Heaven also gives us meaning in this life. I've heard a lot of people use this uh, phrase or question recently. When they're trying to deal with a circumstance, they go, okay, does this matter in five years? And what they're saying is they're trying to get a little perspective. Okay, how big of a deal is this? In five years, will it be a big deal to me? Because right now it is. And I, I get that question. But I think they're asking the wrong question. I think the right question is, will this matter in a thousand years or 10,000 years? Because if we start getting a bigger perspective of not just five years or 85 years, but of a thousand, of 10,000 years, we're going to start looking at our life much differently. We will look at our relationships differently. We will start to look at them as not people who we have to interact with on a daily basis. We'll begin to look at them as people whom we can change their eternity. As we look at our schedules and our priorities, uh, my guess is that most of the things you spend your time on will not matter next year, let alone in a thousand years. And so what if we started investing our time into things that are going to matter for eternity? Or what about your view of money? 
What do you spend your money on? If you believe that this is all there is, you better get as much as you can. You spend it on what you want because it's all going to be gone in the end. But if your money can invest in something, like Jesus says, where we, we store our treasures in heaven, you will start to spend your money differently. You'll become generous. You'll be kingdom-minded people. You'll use your resources to change people's here and their forever. And finally, it gives us a reason to rejoice. That's what this whole series is about. This whole series is about reasons to celebrate because God has been good. And so Jesus says to his disciples, after they've come back and they've experienced these miraculous supernatural things and they're all just pumped up and they're celebrating, he goes, hold on, that's great that you guys are able to do that, that the Holy Spirit is using you in that way, but what you should really be rejoicing is you should rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so what if we looked at what if we looked at our lives as a, a time to rejoice, not because of our circumstances, but because we know how this story ends? What if we looked at a, every opportunity as a way to rejoice because we know that God has made a way back for us? We know that we can be in right relationship with him, that we are promised eternity. And so here's how I want to end this, this message. I want you to just close your eyes for a moment and imagine a couple things. John Lennon said that imagine there is no heaven. Well, let's imagine if there is. Right now, just imagine there being no pain, no physical pain. Just momentarily, just scan your body mentally. Is there any places of pain? Is there anything that's broken? Is there anything that's not supposed to be that way? What if that was fixed? Not just fixed, but it was better. It was more enhanced. It operated the way that things should be. Or what about fear and worry? Did you have any worry or fear this week? Is there anything in your mind right now that's bugging you? What if that was resolved right now and forever? You never had to experience fear or worry any longer. What about sorrow and grief? Think about a loved one that you have lost. What if, what if that no longer has to happen again? What if every relationship that you have right now, those who believe in Jesus, it will ha- never have an ending? Your spouse, your kids, your parents, your friends, what if you don't ever have to say goodbye to them? What about the person who has already, already gone and is awaiting you? I think about some of my relatives and some of my friends. What would that be like to embrace them once again? What would it feel like to say, oh, it is so good to be back together? What will it feel like to stand face to face with Jesus? And as you look in his eyes, no matter what you've experienced in this moment, you will say, I will have done that life a million times over to experience this right now. You're more loved, more alive, accepted, full of peace and fulfillment than you could ever have imagined. And go ahead and open your eyes. That's the picture that the scripture paints for us. And we're supposed to keep our minds, and we're supposed to lift our eyes off of the weeds of today and look at what is lying ahead of us. Because if we can do that, if we truly believe that that is what awaits us, it will change our today. It will change our priorities. It will change how we view the world. It will give us the ability to rejoice. So that's the challenge. Everything in the world wants to get your gaze on today, on now, on all the immediate needs, and God continues to call us to look heavenward and say, no, this is what awaits you. This is what you should be focused on. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the... um, the opportunity that you have given us to come and be in a right relationship with you. It's through your uh, sacrifice of your son that um, you have enabled us to do that. And Lord, 
it's not just a way for us to be forgiven of our sins, of course, but it is a way for us to inherit eternal life, one that we get to spend with you. And so, Lord, we get so caught up in the concerns of this world that we forget what lies ahead of us. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would keep at the forefront of our mind this vivid imagery of what you have prepared for us. Lord, let it transform our lives so that we live for that moment and we don't live for this moment here. Lord, if there's any of us in this room who don't know you, that this would be something that maybe wakes them up, tells them that there is more to life than just these momentary pleasures, that there is hope in the end. And Lord, I pray that you would call them to yourself. We love you. We thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Will you guys stand with me? Um, Doyle is holding up a sign, and it says, chocolate chip pancakes after both services. Of course you're holding that sign. I mean, <laughs> right on. Chocolate chip pancakes out there. Go grab some. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message, and remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.